This is the official Sasta podcast brought to you by me, Harry Stebbings, found most often on Snapchat at H Stebbings. And if you missed the announcement last episode, then surprise, because after all this time, I'm so delighted to say that the one and only godfather of Sass, Jason Lemkin, is now on Snapchat too. And you can follow him at J Lemkin. That should be fantastic to see. And speaking of fantastic to see, after 93 episodes, it'd be fantastic to meet you. And now we can at Sasta Annual in less than 20 days. So all you have to do to join me, Jason, the likes of YC, Sam, Altman and Facebook's Dustin Moskovitz is enter the promo code Drinks with Harry. Those three words, Drinks with Harry, when you purchase your tickets, and you'll get a fantastic twenty percent off the ticket price and free mojitos, which in my eyes counts as one of your five a day. But to the show today, and you might remember we were lucky enough to have Unicorn founder Josh Reeves at Gusto on the show a couple of months ago. And after the interview, I asked Josh, "Who must I have on the show? Who would he most recommend?" He was unwavering in his response, Lexi Reese. And so I'm delighted to welcome Lexi Reese to the show today, Lexi is the Chief Customer Experience Officer at Unicorn Startup Gusto, and Lexi is one of the top female executives in Silicon Valley. Lexi's passion for serving customers was sparked by her early career in microfinance as a public policy advocate with Axion International, giving loans to people living in poverty to start their own ventures. She later worked at Google for eight years, most recently serving as Vice President of Programmatic Sales and Strategy Globally. Lexi also started the Cambridge AdWords team for Google's small business organisation. Now at Gusto, Lexi ensures that Gusto is continuing continuously going above and beyond to serve all customers. However, before we dive into the show today, if you do make the wise decision of coming to Sasta Annual, then you'll see the incredible Algolia team in person. Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast, typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a perfect investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search and get started on their 14-day free trial at algolia.com forward slash SASTA podcast. However, enough from me. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Lexi Reese at Gusto. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Lexi, it's so fantastic to have you on the show today. Having heard so many wonderful things from, I, I don't know where to start, you're Josh at Gusto to Hunter Walk to Tien at Zora. But thank you so much for joining me today, Lexi. Thank you so much, Sherry. I'm happy to be here. Now, I'd love to get started today by discussing a little bit about you and how you made your way into the world of, of early stage tech, really, and then and then came to be uh, where you are today with Gusto. Happy to share. It is not a puzzle that you would maybe piece together, but much later in my career, I had Claire Johnson, who's the COO of Stripe now. She said something that really resonated that sort of explains the chapters of my career, which is to find what you really want to do, you have to follow a combination of your head and your heart and your gut. And I think I've been working for a long time and I started really by following my heart and did work in documentary film and microfinance. Effectively, I was working in Nicaragua doing a film about adolescent process 
prostitutes and lived in Managua with the girls, witnessed why they had actually gone into that trade, which was effectively because they saw that their parents and mainly their moms had too many kids and weren't able to take care of their kids. So it was a really rational choice for these young kids to go into prostitution because that was the only path they saw as a way to contribute to their families. And then, of course, it becomes a nightmare because they end up, in their case, smoking glue to take themselves away from the horrendous reality of what they were doing every day and their lives take a horrible turn for the worse. So a rational decision made for the best of reasons becomes a horrible life choice. So being a documentarian in in that situation, one, I wasn't that good at making documentaries, and two, I really felt a calling to how do you make a difference in the lives of those girls and the women that they were trying to support their moms. And so began a path that has really been one around advocate advocacy in some shape or form to make a long story short, moved from that to microfinance, where we were giving loans to people living in poverty, mostly in Latin America. That was with Oxion International. And I had a fantastic boss mentor there named Michael Chu, who said, Lexi, your heart's in the right place but you better go get some hard skills, which at that point I had no idea what he meant. And I started thinking, what are soft skills? But in talking about it, he he just said, you know, you have this tremendous passion for what you do, but if you think about it and you can learn the language of business, uh, and he was really encouraging me to, to go into to do business school, then you're going to be effective in public sector, nonprofit, or maybe, you know, you'll go into business. So up until that point, I would have said, cut off my left arm before you would see me in business. I didn't know anyone who went to business school except for him really at that point, but he had gone to Harvard where they have this incredible social enterprise program as part of the business school. I went there. I ended up loving it. I found this language around, you know, the whole package, accounting, corporate finance, leadership, technology and operations management. I just found that to be this eye-opening way to effectively influence change. You know, when you're starting a business, you're influencing something that didn't exist before. And if you go back to my roots and and sort of advocacy and wanting to make a difference, I felt like this gave me the raw materials to be able to do that in a better way. After business school, that enters probably business school starts chapter two, if the first chapter was about the heart. The second chapter was a lot about the head and applying those skills in a private sector environment. So spent time at American Express. So I, I did that work learning investing. Um, and then rolled into uh, the small business unit and found this awesome combination. I was starting to be able to connect the dots of providing financial services to small and medium businesses who are such a huge engine of the economy, both in the U.S. and internationally, and learning how to support those businesses. And got a call from a friend at business school who was working at Google at the time, and this was in 2007. And she effectively said, look, this is an incredible company. I realize technology isn't your background, but we are building a business with small and medium businesses. So instead of sharing the world of credit cards with that segment, you'd be sharing the world of AdWords and 
AdWords, of course, it was an incredible, incredible product. It still is. It was incredible to join Google and I joined in online sales and operations, which is the world that Sheryl Sandberg was running and opened our Boston office in for Google at the time. And so it was fantastic to do that. And in addition to the craft of marketing and optimizing and supporting those businesses, I really had the chance at that point to build an office that I had never had before. So hired a hundred people, picked out real estate. Now being at a startup, it's laughable to say it was a startup within Google because of course we don't have any of the constraints at that point that real startups have. But at the time it really felt, and I think I got the itch for, wow, this is a really amazing thing to be able to build a business with at that point, um, not too much, too much supervision. Although of course there was some, but it felt very entrepreneurial. And ultimately right before I left Google running our programmatic advertising business globally across sales and strategy. And I'm intrigued now at Gusto as CCO, what does that really mean in terms of title and all that's encapsulated within it? CXO actually, Chief Customer Experience Officer. And it means effectively on a day-to-day, it's running our sales and we don't call it this, but at Gusto, our support teams effectively means every interaction we have with a prospect all the way through till they're hopefully a lifelong happy customer. It also it imbues a, a responsibility for practicing what the founders really want, which is that customers are first. And at Gusto, we say this, but we also live it. And so while customer experience is not solely my responsibility or the folks that I empower, by labeling a customer experience team, you really make sure that you don't fall short of your promise to deliver on an amazing customer service organization. Mm-hmm. And you said there about kind of the emphasis on customer first, something I know from, from speaking to Josh previously. Uh, and obviously, a lot of people say this and easy to say, harder to do. So I'm intrigued as to how you learn to put it into practice and make that kind of customer first vision a reality. Yeah, I think it is easy to say and hard to do. And I think going back to my investment days and lots of friends are VCs and my husband is in private equity. And I joke when folks are putting companies together, have an investment thesis and they have this concept of synergies or, oh, we'll just get those costs down. And often they're talking about customers, you know, let's, let's actually, let's get the customer service down in the nature of trying to make an investment really good. Oftentimes people are talking about efficiency and oftentimes efficiency leads to let's cut the services that we provide to customers. So one, I chose to come to Gusto because I believed that the idea of putting customers first is truly foundational to the founders. So Josh, Tomer, and Eddie, they got into this business to solve real problems for real people. When we invite people or hire people, in addition to finding colleagues who are stunning in their craft and their intellect, we also hire based on people's passion for the mission we're on and alignment to our values, which are first and foremost to provide an extraordinary service and do what's right for the businesses we're lucky to have on our platform. So I think it needs to be 
be foundational and you need to live it and it has to be part of the founder's DNA. And then you have to make sure through a really good recruiting process that it's part of the DNA of everyone you hire and literally everyone, not just the folks who are talking to customers every day. And then second, you actually have to put it into practice and we can spend a little time on on what that means. I'd love to dive into what that means kind of inherently in an organization like Gusto. One, for me and for my team, it means spending as much time as possible talking to customers and listening to customer interactions. So you're always current on how are people using the product? What are the issues they're having with the product or with the service? And and using that, and in addition to me actually being on phones with customers and talking to customers and meeting customers in their place of business, which I do and look at how they spend their days and how Gusto is a part of their day, you can use that to really define your strategy, your structure, and your execution plan around creating an incredible CX, shorthand for customer experience. So on strategy, I think every business has to say, is this a me too part of what you provide or is it truly a differentiator? And if it's going to be a differentiator, do I want to produce a high level of touch or a basic level of touch? And example, Southwest service is a differentiator, but it is very basic. Ritz service is a very, is a very big differentiator, but it's niche and it's pretty expensive. So second, as part of strategy, you need to go from after you decide if it's going to be differentiator, which of course for Gusto as an all-in-one people platform, that's trying to create a world where work empowers life. We want to have this be a differentiator, but you then have to go from celebrating great experience for everyone to deciding who is your target segment that you want to be awesome for and who are you okay not being as good for. So the implication is understanding the product market fit with various customer segments and the unit economics of serving those segments and making sure you are really clear with both your product and engineering team as well as your sales teams. Who are we in the business of really trying to serve and making sure you are truly excellent for those folks? Can I ask you, um, do you have to compromise yeah. on the who you perfect and then who you maybe can't perfect in such a way? Do you have to compromise? And if you do, is it worth then servicing the ones that you can't service as well as you can optimally the other segment. Yeah, you you know, this is an ongoing discussion I think that we continue to have as an executive team. I think that it's less you do have to make trade-offs and I think you do have to set expectations really well with the customers that you are serving on what you can do. So that requires getting your operations in control. So I'll give you some examples. Getting great CSAT and NPS for your first 50,000 customers can be done through heroics. You, you know, it, it, while it's always awesome if you provide a great service as measured by customers telling you, I'm really satisfied with this transaction or with the whole experience, mm-hmm. which is what CSAT and MPS do, you can do that through just amazing acts of great humans. Getting the next tranche of customers, so getting into the hundreds of thousands and millions, requires that the standard deviation and how you respond to top issues becomes super low. And so the actions that are required, and I'll get back to the question of trade-offs, is you really got to deeply use analytics to diagnose top case reasons, look at tickets, evaluate how we can make sure 
in the words of one of my HBS professors, Francis Fry, she says, discretionary acts reveal that the folks on the front line understand truly what is the service that we want to provide and are living and breathing that in every action they take on the front line. So when you really look at that and you stare at how you're doing by customer segment, whatever those segments are. So we look at it in terms of how many employees do the businesses that use Gusto have? What states are they in? What industries are they in? Then you get some pretty good evidence of naturally where are you gravitating towards who is having an amazing experience and who isn't. And then I think you have to say, well, if that is what has emerged naturally, is that what we want to happen? Or do we want to take big steps to make sure the experience is wildly different for someone that we want to serve better? And this just gets into a combination of analytics and strategy where you say, well, you know, in principle that you cannot be truly excellent for anyone if you're not willing to be okay for someone because the path to mediocrity is trying to just be okay for everybody. And so making really strong choices hand in hand with the folks who are building the product and designing the product strategy to say, okay, well, right now, Gusto is really good for businesses that are under a hundred employees, especially those that are in service industries, i.e. that don't have a lot of folks who are being paid under the table because we are effectively a compliance organization that pays taxes for folks. So we are really good for that segment. If you get to be a bigger business, say 200 people, the service is not awesome. And therefore, while it would be, and some companies in our space and other spaces take the dollar, the dollar is green no matter what, and don't worry too much about the experience. We actively say, hey, you're an amazing business. We would love to serve you. We can't serve you now. Here are some, and oftentimes we're referring competitors that may be able to do this better, and we'd love to stay in touch. And when we become ready to take on a business of your size or shape, um, we'd love to call you back. And again, that is pretty remarkable. I've been in a lot of organizations where we don't do that, and we actively do that every day. And of course, we track those customers that we regrettably say we can't uh, do right by you right now, and hopefully we will be able to service them one day. But yes, you do have to make trade-offs. So what is the infrastructure then for you required to service those uh, additional customers that you maybe can't service to the best of your needs and desires? What is the additional infrastructure that would be needed to make that CX truly scalable? It's a couple things. I think one, obviously, our heritage is in small and medium businesses because that is aligned with the three problems that inspire and motivate us. So there's a tremendous amount of unnecessary pain and manual process in how the this segment, the segment that we serve today, builds their team today. And so providing amazingly easy payroll service gives great peace of mind to those folks. When we move into larger businesses, we now that we also offer health insurance, we are in a land of large group health insurance, which requires regulations and regulatory compliance that at this point we are not actively pursuing because we still think that we have a ways to go to provide the peace of mind 
especially around this all-in-one service of payroll plus HR plus health insurance to the segment that we are serving and that we have promised to serve. So I think, one, we have to feel confident that we have on this stage of serving the businesses we've chosen to serve, that we have done that really fully and well before we take on the engineering requirements and the acquisition and support requirements that larger businesses would inevitably need. And that would pull away from this core segment that we have started with and we've been building with pretty well for the last five, five and a half years. Before we dive into the quickfire then, would you then very much advocate for kind of extreme focus with regards to customer segmentation and choosing your customer profile? Definitely. I mean, I I think that there's very few businesses. Again, I think that a lot of businesses can get to the 10 to 50,000 customer range without making super hard choices. But I think if you want to be on a multi-decade build a lifelong customer business, you've got to make some pretty significant choices and active choices around who are you servicing, how, and what are you willing to trade off in order to be amazing for them. And I'd love to dive into our quick fire round. We call it 60 seconds faster. So 60 seconds per short statement. How does that sound? That sounds great. So this is one from Josh, actually. And he says, you've med- you've led many teams over the years, large and small. What are some of the lessons you learned about leadership? One, it feels like when I look back on teams that I've led or been on that have been successful, they, they all share an understanding around four things. Why are they doing what they're doing? And this is a sense of a higher level purpose. Is, is not about the feature of what they are selling or servicing. So you have to have a purpose. You need to know what success looks like. So what's the picture of success? You absolutely need to have a plan that people understand how you're going to reach that success that you've painted as, as what the scorecard is. And then everyone on the team needs to know this is my individual part in helping with that plan to make that success a reality. And usually when you diagnose teams that have not been as successful, one of those four things is missing. And then one from Tien at Zora, he says, hype culture, how do you avoid it in, in the midst of Silicon Valley and the bubbles that we see? Hype culture is, I think Josh has done a really good job of this. And I think after you've been at a business, I've only been at Gusto for a year and almost a year and a half. You just see how fickle anything outside of the company is, whether it's press, whether it's investors. And we have an we have some amazing investors, but it's almost like a fourth grade playground where one day you're popular and the next day you're not. And one day you're on the inside and the next day you're on the outside. And so I think just sharing with folks that it doesn't matter really what an echo chamber outside of the four walls that you are in say or or what what is the reverberation publicly about what you do or your space. It matters if you feel compelled to do the work that we're doing every day. And the service is ultimately judged by customers. If they're choosing us and if they're happy with us, then we are doing the best work of our lives and putting people in positions where their skills and passions match to do that 
personal work better. And we talk about that a lot. And I think we, again, part of that is how we invite people into the community. Folks that want to be at a hot startup, any startup, and it doesn't matter what the thesis of that startup is, get screened out pretty quickly from Gusto because we, again, I mean, it is has a missionary zeal about it. And then final one, and again, it's from Josh, and he says, what's the most difficult part of your daily role? Oh, the most difficult part, I think, is context shifting. So while you're in a startup, we have, Josh says a lot, you're driving the train, you're laying the tracks, and you're trying to set the schedule for the next 10 stops. What that means from a a day-to-day practice is your time and how you spend your time as your most valuable asset. Managing that time is an active sport. And so when I don't do it well, my time is not batched as well as it could be. So I'm context shifting constantly from going from talking about super high level strategy to handling a customer escalation to coaching an individual team member. And while I love that, sometimes you don't feel like you can do the best work of your life if you're actually shifting so much how your brain is working. And so I work really hard with my team to say, okay, this is the day where we're actually looking at and now this is the time where we're serving customers and this is when we're thinking about strategy and that actively helps make sure that you're focused and ruthlessly prioritized on the highest value things that you personally can be adding to the company. And, and moving slightly out of the quickfire and, and onto the final question and it's one from a mutual friend uh, and, and fantastic chap that's Hunter Walk and he asked more kind of uh, on the nitty gritty side, how do you actually measure customer satisfaction? What are the true benchmarks that you calibrate against to consider success? So we have a number of things. Effectively, we look at customer happiness. So one, are you happy with every touch point you had? Touch point interaction is measured by customer satisfaction. And then are you happy with the company? Something more relationship-based, and that includes product quality, price value, and that is measured by net promoter score. How, we then, how, how efficient and effective do you think net promoter Scores. I speak to many founders and many are big protagonists for it. And then others say, actually, it means nothing. It's highly inaccurate and unreliable when you have different geographies involved who potentially have different satisfaction. You know, Germans are traditionally less optimistic in NPS schools. And so if you have cross borders, it's confusing. What, what do you think about NPS and its effective? I think there is NPS and surveys in general are only an instrument to gauge the true satisfaction of your customers. They're only one instrument. You can't rely on them solely and feel that you have had a, that that you've made a difference in your customers' lives. So I think that needs to be accompanied by one, nothing can replace customer interactions and having smart people who have a really good handle on how customers are responding to your product and your service. There is a qualitative element that goes over understanding just the metrics to say, are we living up to the mission of being truly extraordinary? That requires, based on the segmentations we have, what are the moments that matter to those segments? And then a ton of data to say, are we living up to what the expectations are in those moments that matter? So I would say NPS is something that we use because I think it's industry standard. It is not the only thing that I would build my customers. 
customer experience organization around. And I think it can often be misused and you could feel really good about yourself when in fact you are missing the mark almost entirely for the customers that you really are going after. But to get back to the original question, a combination of the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So those are the metrics that we use for customer satisfaction with the addition of doing a ton of voice of the customer work qualitatively to augment those statistics. And then we look at productivity of our teams. And again, we use efficiency metrics to be able to make sure that we are delivering on the promise of if we get a question 10 times, we should not get it the 11th because either the product has been fixed or we have made that answer self-discoverable based on the insight that most small businesses don't want to have to pick up the phone or email us with a question. The time is their most valuable asset, so let's give it back to them by letting them find any answer for, for themselves. And then if we do need to get that question, let's use an incredible learning and development process to make sure our team is answering it as best and as thoroughly as possible. So the productivity metrics of our team inform those that mission and lead to good conversations with product, good conversations with our content team and a ongoing learning and development roadmap. And then we use a lot of uh, actually the folks on the front line, how are they feeling about our product and service? So oftentimes uh, the customer service advocates who are on the phone with customers every day and their feedback on our ability to deliver to our promise led to some of the most insightful developments in how we service our customers. Well, Lexi, it, I, I was told it would be an absolutely wonderful show to have you on from, from as I said, Hunter, Tien, and Josh, and you've absolutely lived up to expectations and more. So thank you so much for joining me today on the show. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Harry. Thanks for having me. And again, a huge hand to Lexi for giving up her time today to be on the show. It really was so fantastic to hear her incredible journey with Gusto. And a huge thanks to Josh Reeves at Gusto for the intro. Do not forget, if you would like to hang out with me and Jason and drink mojitos at Sasta, all you have to do is enter the three magic words, drinks with Harry. Those three magic words, drinks with Harry, when you purchase your tickets and you'll get a staggering 20% off the ticket price and free mojitos. And as we said earlier, we'd absolutely love to see you at Sasta Annual this year. And if you do decide to make the wise decision of coming to Sasta Annual, then as we said, you'll get to see the incredible Algolia team and product in person. Now, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning fast typo tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences by owning the entire stack from engine to server. Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. And for smaller SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search and get started on their 14-day free trial at algolia.com forward slash SaaS to podcast. As always, we so appreciate your support and cannot wait to bring you next week's episode with TN at Zoora.